Welcome to episode 60 of the Holly Springs Deep Dive Podcast. My name is Karen Shore, and I'm excited that you're listening today. I know, I know it's been a minute since you heard from me. I'm really sorry about that, but I'm sure you'll understand that sometimes life just gets in the way. I got a new job in Raleigh, and I needed some time to get their permission to continue with this podcast to make sure it's not a conflict of interest, that sort of thing. But I'm in the clear, and I'm ready to jump back in. Do you feel it in the air yet? I do. No, I'm not talking about the landfill. What I'm talking about is election season. Believe it or not, it's upon us again. Mayor Sears told us during his most recent candidacy that he wouldn't be running again, so the mayoral race is wide open, and so are three of the five seats on the Holly Springs Town Council. I don't know if you've been watching, but I'm a nerd, so I have been watching the daily reports from the Wake County Board of Elections that lists everyone who has registered to run for elected office in Wake County. There are people on that list that you 100% expected to run, people who might surprise you and people you've never even heard of, and you need to learn about all of them so you can figure out who will best represent us in the decisions that, let's face it, impact us way more than bigger national races do. That's where this podcast comes in. I hope to interview each and every one of them to help you figure out who will get your vote this November 2nd. So to get you in the headspace to start thinking about this sort of thing, boy, do I have a treat for you. I got to know a candidate for office recently, and I want you to meet her too. Now, she's not running in a local race. She's running in the Republican primary to replace United States Senator Richard Burr. So she has some big hurdles to clear just to be listed on that ballot next November. She's running against some really big names and might get drowned out by the shouting among those candidates. But she shouldn't, because everyone who is willing to run as a serious candidate in such a big race should be heard. I found her to be optimistic and knowledgeable. Her name is Jen Banwart, and she lives in our little corner of Wake County. I really think you'll get a feel for who she is. Her primary race is set for March 8th. 2022, and she already has at least 10 opponents to beat just to get the opportunity to run for the seat representing the Republican ticket. She's personable, and we laughed a lot during our discussion. I've listed her campaign website and some other links in today's show notes. Before we get started, if you're enjoying this podcast, consider becoming a supporter by clicking the Patreon link on my website, hollyspringsdeepdive.com. This podcast is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. And if you're interested in having your business sponsor an upcoming non-election-related episode, because I don't take sponsors for episodes that feature candidates for elected office, reach out to me at hollyspringsdeepdive at gmail.com. It costs less than you think, and you'd gain exposure to tons of locals in our area. Okay, ready to get to know the Holly Springs resident running in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate? Let's dive in. I am so excited to have uh, this guest on this week. Her name is Jennifer Banwart. She is running in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate to replace uh, Senator Richard Burr. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you so much, Karen. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, You have said that you are running... Uh, you've described your campaign as non-traditional. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? 
Yes, ma'am, I can. Uh, so we talk a lot as Republicans, uh, but I think everybody in government really wants fiscal responsibility. We want to balance the needs of today with the burden that we're putting on the future every time we draw up the debt, the deficit, all of those sorts of things. And what we really want to have happen is uh, just to be show responsibility, make good decisions. And that is important to me. I'm coming out of a career with the Department of Defense where for 20 years, sort of the motto unofficially is do more with less. And, you know, after doing that and coming out, it didn't feel right to me to run a campaign and take a lot of grassroots money, especially on the heels of COVID when a lot of people have maybe been had a break in employment or, um, you know, maybe are, uh, having some health issues. It did not feel right to me to be taking grassroots money. And I don't agree at all with taking PAC money, interest group money, particularly outside of your state. And so I decided that I was going to run and I was going to show people in my campaign the way that I would be in the Senate as well. I was going to show that responsibility I've had my whole career while I was running. And so I'm running on $5,000 of my own money because that is what is required to enter the U.S. Senate race. And the people that work on my campaign are all volunteers. A lot of them are college students from across the state. And they are thrilled to have the opportunity. I always say it's like a teaching hospital in some ways because they're not out canvassing or phone banking. They're getting an opportunity to really get some experience under their belt doing things like regional strategist or social media lead. Um, and they are just so phenomenal and so bright. And they just bring such positivity and a unique perspective to politics, to government, and it's just wonderful to soak it all in from them. And so it's really been a pleasure and a blessing to have them and also to make the choices that I've made. So, Well, it's good to have um, that um, dynamic on your team um, because, you know, everybody knows that uh, the youth vote is really important and so many have been discouraged and kind of disconnected from the whole process. So it's good to, um, you know, to have them on your side, kind of helping motivate their peers. Absolutely. And, you know, even beyond that, um, with the Republican Party, but politics in general, I sort of see a little bit of a generation gap. We see a lot of people sort of in their 55 plus who are still very, very active in politics. And then we see um, sort of a gap almost uh, for a lot of people who are between the ages of maybe 30 and 45. Now, that makes sense in some ways because that's when you are having a family and you have a lot of familial obligations. You have maybe parents that you're helping to take care of as well. And there's just a lot going on. But it's such an important demographic to bring into the political arena because you're dealing with Medicare, right? If you're helping your parents, you're dealing with education because you also have young children and you're dealing with everything that people in your age bracket are dealing with as well from the job perspective, from the healthcare perspective. And so um, there's that. And then you have sort of 
the younger generation that you're talking about in their 20s or even in their high teens who are wanting to get interested in it, who are wanting to get involved in it. You're seeing younger people running, which is just phenomenal. But Republicans in particular didn't build that bench. They did not bring people along in the ways that you would hope to see. And so that's really been a big thing with my campaign as well. Not just getting people energized about voting who are young, but also getting them energized about running themselves soon, because we need to build that bench. We need people to be the future leaders and the leaders of today. Mm -hmm. Well, um, speaking of uh, people who may be underrepresented uh, in politics right now, um, you are running to. Well, let's let's skip the let's skip the primary. We're going to assume that you win. Um, if you win the election, you would be only the third female identifying United States senator in North Carolina's entire history. Why do you think that is? Um, I can't I can't not name drop. Um, um, Senator Elizabeth Dole and Kay Hagan were the first two. Um, why do you think that is? That's a really good question. And it's really hard to know why people vote the way they do. I think uh, if somebody had that formula, they would be selling it for all it was worth to people. Um, but you know, I think that one was a Democrat and I believe and one was a Republican. I know that uh, Senator Dole was a Republican and I believe that the other woman was a Democrat. Right. Um, and so it doesn't even show anything that you would look at, like maybe along party lines, you would see some sort of differences in what people were accepting. Um I think really it's just about there probably aren't a lot of women who are in the arena to try and do this because of what we talked about. A lot of women, particularly in the age range where you would see people being politically active or hope to see people being politically active, just have a lot of other obligations. And this is something uh, that I experience a lot, even going around and talking with people at different functions and meeting people when I I talk to them, they sort of ask me about my children. And it's not unusual that after asking me about my children, I have eight-year-old twins and a three-year-old son. Uh, they say, wow, who's going to take care of them if you get this job? And so I think there's just this impression that people have that maybe sometimes is accurate, but in a lot of ways is very dated, uh, that women can't be doing these things because they don't have the resources available to them to be successful at it and also to be successful in other aspects of their life. And that simply is not true anymore. And nobody ever asks a male candidate, what on earth are you going to do with your little kids if you win? They, they don't get that question. It's a great point. So one of the things I also talk about frequently is uh, in running, you have a lot of social media presence. And in my social media presence, it says that I'm a mom. And in some of my competitors' social media presence, they have listed that they are dads. When I get press coverage, frequently the way that they describe me is a mom from the Raleigh area. Now, I've had 25 years in Washington, D.C., working on Capitol Hill, working for the Department of Defense, working for the National Security Agency as an intelligence analyst and leader. And I'm very proud of being a mother. It is one of the proudest accomplishments of my life. 
but it diminishes so much the dimension that I have in the person that I am and the qualifications that I bring to this position. Uh, Being a political science major in my undergrad, we studied all the different types of feminism. And you have people that say there's this this essential quality that women bring that is different uh, in a lot of ways from what men bring in terms of feeling that they bring and negotiation and empathy. And then you have people who say that, you know, women, uh, liberal feminists who say that it's very easy for women to come in and work in a man's world in a man's way. You have a lot of examples of that historically where women have been successful with that model. Um, And I think it's hard to say. Every person is the sum of all their parts. They're the sum of all their experiences and contexts. And whether you're a woman or a man, you're going to bring that to the job that you're going to do. You're going to bring different leadership tools and styles based on what you've experienced. I will say a critique of me sometimes has been that I uh, can lean in and I'm not afraid of conflict and I can be a little aggressive sometimes. It's not my personality when you're just talking to me. Hi, I'm Jen. But when it's needed and coming from a highly militarized organization that in some ways is still very dominated by men, uh, you have to be able to hold your own. And so I think that for me specifically, uh, you could expect somebody who is personable and professional, but at the same time, isn't afraid to lean in and isn't afraid to fight the hard fights. I mean, we could go for hours and talk about society and the way women are judged um, through a different <laughs> lens than men. Gosh, that's there's a lot to unpack there. So I appreciate you being able to um, answer these sorts of questions as quickly as you did. Um, just it's because interesting. It, it's interesting. And it's complicated and it's frustrating and it's embarrassing and it's oh, just all of the things. All of the things. The biggest lesson that I learned, though, uh, really in coming up through the Department of Defense. So I tell this story sometimes about uh, sitting in a room, being in my second year, being in my mid-20s and having a general that I was briefing. I came in one month after 9-11. So obviously a pretty heavy time for the country, a pretty heavy time for intelligence, a pretty heavy time for defense. And being in my second year, being in my mid-20s, and routinely briefing generals, policymakers, leadership in this country, and one day briefing this general who had come back from the field, and in the middle of the briefing that I gave, he abruptly stood up and said, I want to get her on a plane right now. She needs to come out and support my troops in theater. And all of these civilian leaders sort of looking at each other very silently in the room like, Uh, okay, what do we do? And one of them actually vocalizing and saying, but sir, she's a woman. And the general, this was beautiful. He says, I don't care. Put a uniform on her, put her hair up. She'll look just like everybody else. And that uh, was progressive feminism in DOD. And, you know, that is sort of, uh, you put your head down, you know your things, you be professional, you bring your best every day, and you're going to get noticed. And people are going to forget about the fact that you're a woman or a man or whatever you are. And um, that would be sort of my advice to somebody who maybe is running into some challenges like that is most people, not everybody, most people will 
for that will fade away to them. Your gender will fade away to them as you begin to show that you know things, that you're competent, that you're professional, and that you're a force to be reckoned with. I think the frustrating part, for me at least, is that someone in that meeting felt empowered to say, but she's a woman. Um. In all fairness to them, you know, it was it was a changing time very quickly in one day. The entire political landscape changed because of this thing that happened on 9-11. And so people were pushing the boundaries very quickly in ways that had been dormant in the Department of Defense for a long time because the Cold War had been over and things had changed. And so I don't know that it so much was a byproduct of they actually were saying that I couldn't do it as it was they were trying to figure out in their mind how they were going to do it and thinking out loud and maybe needing a little bit more of a filter but yes either way you know it's something to know and it's something to realize and I just love that this military general says you know what I don't care it's a great example I don't care at all she knows her stuff I need her on my team do whatever you have to do and get her out there that's the kind of person that we need to be a leader and hopefully we have more of those that we think we have I, I hope so. I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> um, and thank you for reminding me to focus on the positive, to focus on the general who said, I don't care. Get her out here. Um, you're taking me out of my head where I'm thinking, why is it that a man, their default assumption about a man is, okay, he can do this. But a woman, the default assumption is she can't. You know, a, a man is left to prove that he can't handle something, whereas a woman has to prove that she can. But again, with feminism, there's a lot to talk about. And I'm sorry, I don't know. I'm, I'm just in that mindset today, I guess. <laughs> so, Well, and I mean, I feel very much the way you do, not so much for myself, because I'll get in there and hold my own. But I have two girls who are eight. And when they run for Senate someday, I don't want them to have to go through that when they work in the defense department someday. I don't want them to experience that. And so the hope is, you know, we're forging a trail here. We're forging a path that we've never had before. And we're going to have to go out of our way a little bit to make that happen. But the reason that we're doing it and the positivity that we always have to keep in our mind is we're doing it so that our kids don't have to do it. So, right. And I do kind of feel like we're at an inflection point. Um, with racial issues and with, um, you know, gender equality too. So I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, so good. <laughs> yeah. So you are running in the primary. So what you're running for is the, the spot to run as the Republican nominee and what you're doing, this election is going to replace Senator Richard Burr. He has, he said a long time ago, like shortly after he won his current term that he was not going to run again. So it's not like anybody's kicking him out. Um, He's (laughs) done a lot for North Carolina, um, but he's, he's done and that's fine. So you are running against um, kind of a crowded slate of men um uh you've got a an uphill battle um you're dealing with 
uh, what's his name? Ted Budd, who has the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And he's been endorsed by, I believe, uh, I mean, he's he's got some endorsements. You're also mm-hmm. running against Pat McCrory, former governor, former um, mayor of Charlotte. Um, how... How, how do you think you're going to set yourself apart from them? So we all bring different things to the table. We all have different backgrounds and we all have different areas of focus. The thing that I am bringing that I think is the most unique is over 22 years of working in the federal environment, working with Congress, working with policymakers, working across departments and federal agencies. Uh, And basically I've studied written policy for 28 years. And so what I really want to be able to do is take all of this knowledge and all of the things that I learned, all of the tools that I have, and bring them back to Washington and serve them up in the form of benefit for North Carolinians and for Americans. And that is where I think that I really can show a difference. I've been working with federal budget is a great example. Federal budgets are very convoluted. There's lots of kinds of money. There's lots of things to know. Right now, particularly as a Republican, when some things are going in a direction from a fiscal perspective that we aren't necessarily supporting, you can't have somebody that gets in there to be a senator and is going to take a year to learn what the budget is, or a year to learn parliamentary procedure, or a year to learn how to write a bill properly, or to staff something through a committee. This is something that we need to be in a position to hit the ground running and to get in there to be able to work with other people and to be able to move forward in the areas that we feel like we have lost ground in or that we need to make ground in. And you're only going to do that with somebody who understands what that environment is very, very well. Mm-hmm. Well, I did just name the the your your opponents who have the biggest name recognition. There are a few others, um, Mark Walker and Marty mm-hmm. Cook, um, both of them, and there are several potentials as well. Um, Dan- and Mr. Harper has also declared. I don't know if his oh, okay. name is on there. Not yet. Nope, not the one that okay. I'm looking at. Um, but there are several potentials. Um, Dan Forrest, he ran for governor of North Carolina uh, this last time. George Holding is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Michael Watley, chair of the North Carolina Republican Party. I mean, when is the deadline? When are you going to know for sure the slate? When is the deadline yes. to register with the uh, Department of Elections? So this is interesting because there is a federal elections process and then there are North Carolina state election board procedures that you have to go through as well. And like many federal and state processes, never the two shall meet. This is particularly true on campaign finance, but it's also true on deadlines. Just to give you an example, at the federal level, people were registering uh, and their paperwork, their Form 1 and their Form 2, uh, to be able to run as early as December or even January passed. Um, for the state election board, uh, they don't actually make the paperwork even available for you to register for the state, which is how do you get on the ballot, what name do you have, and all of those sorts of things until well into the fall. 
uh, and they don't give you an exact date. So you kind of have to keep checking back and making sure that you're not missing that deadline. And so I think that people have, I want to say until the very end of the year to actually oh. register um, for the primary. But I don't, I'm not entirely positive on that, but I believe it was December 31st or right around the end of December to actually do that, to still qualify to be in the primary election. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess people still have a lot of time to decide if they want to run for Senate. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, primaries where there's not an incumbent are always huge and they're always messy. Uh, And it's, it's just the way it's going to be, but it's great that it is that because so many people are stepping up and wanting to do something. And I think particularly in this election, regardless of what party you're from, regardless of what your view of the world is right now, there are so many people who are feel really inspired, some by anger, some by optimism, some by just an opportunity to contribute, um, that you are going to see a lot of people coming out. And that is harder on the voters. It's absolutely harder on the voters. But if I could say one thing to the voters, it would be expect more from your candidates. Do your research. Life is very, very busy. But a lot of people have said to me just in the time that I've been out speaking with people, which is about three months, that they are not happy with what's going on. They feel like it's more of the same. They have a problem with this issue. They're very concerned about that issue. They are having problems getting, you know, this health care. They are having challenges establishing their small business because of the paperwork and the overhead required. And, you know, the best thing that you can do to change that is look at your candidates. There are lots of them, but look at your candidates, ask them the questions, get to know them, write to them, call them, expect more and vote. It's so important right now. So there are, this is something that, okay, I have two questions. What do you think is different about you that gave you the gumption, the audacity, the whatever you want to call it to run? I mean, because a lot of us sit around and cross our arms and say, well, it should be done this way and it should be done that way. And, you know, some people might say, you know, well, you should run for office if you have all these great ideas. And, you know, 99.9% of people are like, oh, I would never. What do you think makes somebody more likely to just say, you know what? Okay, I'm going to run for something. I mean, what what was your thought process like? It's a really good question. So um, I had heard maybe close to two-ish years ago uh, that Senator Burr might not be running again. And that is the point at which I started to think about it and have preliminary conversations with my family about how would we do this? Could we do this? Um, And started to do research. And I think that one of the goals of my campaign is actually to try and crack wide open the mystery that surrounds running, the the reasons that people feel like they have to have all this money, the reason that people feel like they have to hire massive staffs of people to run a campaign. And I'm not even talking about a federal Senate election. I'm talking about people who just want to run locally for school board or something along those lines. And so I think the biggest pull in the tent for a lot of people is the intimidation of 
the campaign finance requirements, whether at the state level or at the federal level, if you mess them up, you hear a lot about the penalties, you hear a lot about people dinging each other for the kinds of money that they're taking or the fact that they didn't file on time or the fact that they didn't spend all of their money. And I think that it's not that big of a deal. I'm doing it myself. It's not that hard of a process. Trying to crack things like that open for people because I think we sort of have built up this very insular group of people in some ways. And now everybody kind of has this perspective like if you don't start as mayor or school board and you know then maybe state Congress or state Senate and then maybe governor and then maybe you can work at the federal level. I think that people feel like if they miss steps that they're experience isn't going to be valued or they're not going to know enough or they're not going to be able to figure out the governmental processes that surround the things that they need to do or they're not going to be able to get enough money to be competitive and you know i just felt like i was in a really unique position understanding the federal piece having navigated massive bureaucracies for over 20 years to say i'm gonna put my head down and i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna bring everybody with me and i'm gonna help crack this wide open so that people feel like they can do this going forward because in this country there isn't any reason that anyone shouldn't feel like if they have a passion for a for something that they can't go out and run and be successful and if people are feeling that way we need to change it immediately well you mentioned big campaign staff and lots of money how are you going to compete with the Pat McCrory's and their and the machine that is going to be behind him and the machine behind Ted Budd and the others. How are you going to compete um, with the way that you've decided to run your non-traditional campaign? How are you going to get heard in that room of loud voices? It's a really good question. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to have an opportunity to speak with all of them together and then to have question and answer, open question and answer, or even potentially debate. And I speak about this a lot in, when I speak out as well and talk about um, expecting more from your candidates, you know, picking three, having a campaign advisor that is picking three issues that pull well, right? And speaking about them for three to five minutes is not adequate. It's not going to get it done. You're not going to know what you need to know. And I'm not saying that you're going to decide that I am your candidate based on that. You may pick one of those other people, but having more of these forums where the format is more open and casual, people have the opportunity to speak more extemporaneously instead of sort of the formatted three to five minutes that they may have written, may not have written, may have memorized, may not have memorized it's only going to benefit you. And so one of the things that I obviously rely on a lot is social media and starting over the summer and as the election starts heating up now that we're sort of sort of gelled in the race, not completely, I'm sure other people will come out as well and that's good. Um, doing videos on issues that people care about, starting to talk about things more, working more to see if we can do more podcasts or create more senatorial forums through the GOP or through other mechanisms that are available to us. This is the way that I get heard. And if I get heard, I believe I can win. I'm sure every candidate will say that right now. But my biggest goal in all of this is to get heard. If people don't choose me, that's fine. 
choose who you think is the best candidate. But I want to feel like in this election that people felt like they knew who the candidates were and that they feel like they made an educated choice. And if we accomplish that, good. It's funny you say that um, because one of the my most vivid memories from an interview that I did a couple of years ago was with a uh, man who was running for town council in Holly Springs. And he made reference to the notion of winning by losing um, because it was a crowded slate back then. And he said, even if I lose, I'm going to win because I got my views out there. I got people thinking about some things that they might not have thought about before. So that's a real thing. I mean, I would say you've won already just by putting yourself out there because that's a scary thing to do. So I applaud you. Absolutely. I applaud you you for having the guts to do that. Thank you so much. And I think everybody wants to win. And I, of course, believe that a woman's place is in the house and in the Senate. I read that in a book and I love that line. So I definitely wanted to bring it in. I said, that's great. Uh, And, you know, I do believe that I'm the most qualified candidate. I do believe I bring a lot of non-traditional aspects to the Senate position. And I believe I'm ready uh, to go in and really fire it up, change some things and get people out of those conventional mindsets that they've sort of gotten into in the past 20 years in Congress. But if I don't, uh, my goal is exactly as you said, right? Let's get people talking about the issues. Let's get people expecting more from their candidates. We've been talking about campaign finance reform for, you know, over 20 years in a lot of different political arenas. Nobody's doing anything about it. Let's actually do it and, you know, make some progress on that goal. And so any direction that is a positive direction that you can push the limits a little bit, people, Americans are only going to benefit from that. And so, you know, it's worth doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a question about philosophy um, for uh, being an elected official there. In my mind, I think there are one of two ways to go. You can, as an elected official, you can either um, act in what you think is the best interest of your constituency, or you can do what your constituency wants you to do. And that can be the same thing, or it can be the exact opposite thing. Do you feel like you're supposed to represent what we want you to do, or do you feel like you should take what you find out and, you know, confidential settings and, you know, briefings that, you know, the general public aren't privy to, do you think you should make your decision in our own best interest, whether we agree with it or not? Or do you think that you should do what we want you to do? So I think that there has to be that trust there and there's a balance. Uh, like in all things in life. I think you want to represent your constituency. I think that before the primary, you put a little bit out there about where your base is and what you believe so that people can say, I identify with that and I trust that, or I don't identify with that. That's not for me and I don't trust that. And then you continue building on that base when you get into office. There are going to be times when you read the 580 page bill and you caught things that maybe were nuanced, right? But that 
are showing that you're not exactly able to do the things or achieve the goals and objectives that your constituency really wants via the execution of this bill. And there are going to be times when people are going to have to trust you because your job is going to be to read that, spend the time, look at everything with a fine tooth comb and make sure that the outcomes are going to be what they're expecting. And there are going to be times where it's going to look like you're not representing your constituency. And in those times, communication is absolutely critical. As somebody who's coming from a world where I couldn't talk a lot ever with my family or anybody about the things that we did, even when things were coming up in the press, uh, you know, there are going to be those times where you can't talk with people and they're going to have to trust you. But your job is to minimize those times to be accessible, to explain things to people on a regular basis so that when those rare occasions do occur, there's that trust there that you've built. And so it's really a combination of representing your constituency, but also bringing your experience to bear to ensure that you're not spending money on something that's not going to achieve the outcomes that they desire or passing a law that has some sort of loophole or elasticity that they weren't expecting um, that, you know, ends up going in an entirely different direction. I, I, I see that for sure. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. You're, you're giving me a lot to think about, Jen. I promise you are. Um, so are you, we've talked about your non-traditional campaign. Um, a traditional campaign goes after endorsements. Are you going after any endorsements? So we had thought a little bit about that. And every once in a while, I sort of have to get back in the headspace and reset what I'm about. Uh, just like anybody else. I'm used to elections being run in a certain way, and it's very easy to just get back in that groove and think that that's the way I'm going to do things. Um, I will say that after talking to a couple people just about endorsements in general and not asking, but sort of from an advisor perspective, is this something I need to do? How important is it to people? Um, I sort of realized through that process that a lot of the people who I would want to endorse me uh, are not people who are going to endorse pre-primary um, because I wouldn't. I would not endorse pre-primary. It's not something that I believe in. I think you have to let the people speak first. I think that you have to let it play out the way it's going to play out. And then if you want to endorse someone when it's party versus party, you know, that's a different scenario when everybody's bringing out all their big guns, right? That That's a totally different scenario. But for me, it didn't feel right in the pre-primary after speaking with a couple people to to do that. And so I'm not saying I wouldn't take an endorsement potentially if it aligned with the things that I believe and the things that are a priority for me. But it's getting endorsements is not a priority for me at this point. Right. Well, it is now that you mention that it is kind of it, it has a lot of awkwardness potential, um, you know, if if the if the candidate if the winner of the primary turns out to be you what are all of the people who endorse the other candidates going to do they're going to have to come and you know say okay yes <laughs> so, yeah and you know it makes it's, sense it's, 
it's not true for everybody, right? Uh, some people, you know, really believe that that's important. Voters believe that that's really important. And I'm not saying, uh, I'm not trying to knock those people. I'm not trying to say that that can't also be true in a parallel situation uh, to mine. But for me, it's really about what feels right. It's about doing what I feel the right things are and really working hard to find those people who believe the same things. And if there are enough of them out there, then we will make it through the primary and we will go to the Senate. But, you know, if there aren't, then that's fine, too. Yeah. Well, We've spent a lot of time talking and getting over technical glitches. I do appreciate your your patience <laughs> with those. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk talk about and make sure that you, uh, my listeners got out of this interview? I, you know, I think I have said most of it, and it is, the questions have been so wonderful at teasing out all of the things that I love to talk about with people. And I would just reiterate to everyone, expect more from your candidates, do your homework. 2022 is a really important election. Every election is a really important election, but 2022 is a particularly important election, not just for Republicans, but for anybody who wants to come out and vote, uh, who cares deeply about the issues. Right now, we are going in a very different direction from the last administration. And whether you like that or don't like that, this is your opportunity to have your voice in that and to have a big stake in what you believe needs to happen going forward. And if you are a Republican, and this is the most political I'll get on this show because I know that we didn't want to talk too much about politics, but well, if you are a well, hang, hang on, hang on. The reason that we decided not to talk about, well, that I decided not to ask you a bunch about your policy positions is that those are so easy to find out just by going on your campaign website. It wasn't because I yes. was trying to be apolitical, but I want sure. to, yes, I wanted to make sure that people got to know you as a human being. And, yes. and I think that you have really um, displayed that really well but so i'm sorry to have interrupted Thank so yes you. we weren't no no that's fine um and i i wanted to do that and i wanted to honor that because that is what i love and this is a rare opportunity for people to kind of see that in me but i will say because being a republican is part of who i am that there are a lot of things that have happened that I feel like are very dangerous precedents, the overuse of executive power, right, in lieu of bipartisanship um, and kind of bringing everybody to the table to get people to move forward. Uh, the assault on constitutional rights that we're seeing in a lot of different pockets. There are a lot, the way that we're spending money, the way that we are spending money so quickly right now and drawing up the debt uh, for future generations without really thinking very well about A, if we're going to be able to accomplish the things that we think that we're accomplishing through the language and the bills and the things that we're spending money on. That's the first thing. But secondly, is it worth the trade? Is the struggle now maybe worth saving the money down the line? These are just some of the things that are so important and so alarming and that are changing so quickly that I would really encourage anyone who is maybe a moderate or a conservative or a Republican or who cares about those issues, 
uh, in very real ways to really spend your time in this election, to really pick somebody who's going to be able to turn those things around for us. Because if we don't do it in the 2022 election, we're going to lose a foothold to be able to do it in the 24 election. All right. Well, I really appreciate you reaching out um, to this podcast to do this interview. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. And I will say it would be pretty nice to have someone who lives in southwest Wake County. (laughs) A U.S. senator. I mean, you know, that would be nice to have somebody with such local ties to be in charge of stuff. It would be amazing. It would be amazing for sure. But, you know, I think that everybody kind of feels like that about their hometown. And hopefully everybody feels proud when that happens in their hometown, but also realize that North Carolina is such an interesting state because there are so many different terrains. There are so many different points of view. There are so many different issues that matter to people in different areas. And representing all of those is a job of a senator. It's not a district. It's not a county. It's everybody. And so uh, I hope that people in Wake will agree with that. And yeah, I'll still be here, though, at the Farmer's Market in Holly Springs on Saturday and at the library with my kids. And I love to see people. I love to chat people up. It's one of my favorite things, learning about people. That's one of the reasons that I'm running. And so I hope that people will feel great about that and that I'm doing a good job for them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Karen. This was a joy and so, so wonderful uh, of an opportunity and your questions were on point. So thank you. Oh, good. Thank you. I'm glad that you, um, I'm glad you liked them. Find links related to today's content in today's show notes. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me, Karen Shore, with music by Doug Maxwell and Meteorite Productions. Be well, friends. Until next time. (music) 